Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. It's good to gather with you this morning on a hot July day, Um, but it's just good to worship with you and sing with you and now open up God's Word with you. If you're new here, as Eric said, we're glad that God brought you to gather with us. Uh, But whether this is your first time here or you're a uh, covenant member at Sojourn, it's always good to be together on a Sunday. And uh, as Eric said, this is an exciting Sunday uh, as we get ready to send uh, our friend Kim out to the mission field. And so we'll talk more about that at the end of this service. But it's just an exciting Sunday uh, in addition to that because we get to come together to worship Jesus. And this church is about Jesus. And so we're excited to open up God's Word this morning uh, to be able to talk more about that. I did want to say thank you to Mike Dewey for preaching last week. did a phenomenal job just reminding us of uh, the fact that God is a perfect promise keeper. So if you get a chance to listen to Mike's sermon, I encourage you to go online uh, to listen to that. Uh, I think it'll encourage you and bless you. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews as we have been over the last few months. If you need a copy of the Bible this morning, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring a Bible around to you so that you can read along with us this morning. So just keep your hand up till they find you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures, uh, please feel free to take that home with you. We want you to have God's word, not just here on Sunday, uh, but all throughout the week as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump into his word. Father, this morning... We come just with a simple prayer that you, by the power of your Spirit, would help us to behold your greatness, to behold your glory that you give to us in and through your grace, through Christ your Son. You give us Him as a gift. You do a saving work through Him. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would continue that saving work, that transforming work, as we open up your Word. I pray and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in power today and draw us closer to you. May we live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you for your glory. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. When you were a kid, there's a lot of things in your life when you're a kid that you just don't quite understand. It's difficult for you to wrap your mind around, difficult for you to truly understand. And so if you were an inquisitive kid or you've been around inquisitive kids, you know there's always a lot of questions. Most of the time starting with the word why, right? Why is the sky blue? Why or how does gravity work? Why do we yawn? Why do I have a bedtime? Why do I have to eat vegetables? Where do babies come from? So always good classic questions to try and defer to a later point in time. But, you know, the difficult questions continue to come in life. We may grow a little bit older and a little bit wiser and understand a bit more, but there's still things in our life that are difficult for us, even as adults, to wrap our minds around, though I still don't understand why it is that we yawn. For instance, there's two concepts that I've been thinking about this week, looking over this text, that just are those those concepts that I think are difficult for us, even as adults, to understand. The concept of something being indestructible and something being eternal. When something's indestructible, it means that it can't be destroyed. But, but what does that really mean? I mean, I remember when we had a dog that we would buy her indestructible bones, but in a matter of minutes, that piece of advertising was proven to be false. And then it comes to the word eternal. What does that mean? I mean, how are we supposed to wrap our minds around the word eternal? Are, are those words indestructible and eternal? Are they just kind of hyperbolic words used just in an exaggeration to make a point? Because it's difficult for us in this life to find anything that we can compare to, to say, oh, this is eternal. This is indestructible. It's nothing we can really look to or truly understand to help us understand that reality. 
as we come to our text today, we have to venture in a bit. We have to venture in to try and understand what those words mean, to wrap our minds around them, what it means to be indestructible and eternal, more specifically, what it looks like for someone to be indestructible and eternal. But the interesting thing is that the author of Hebrews goes to an interesting place to try and explain this. He looks at this concept by looking to an obscure person in an obscure text in the Old Testament to help us understand. I mean, it's just a handful of verses. But the conclusion he draws from this is enormous. The conclusion he draws from this is absolutely amazing and encouraging for us. Because what he says to us, what we can draw out of this text that we're going to look at today is no matter who you are, no matter who you are or what you've done or what you've been through, you can have an indestructible life because of the power of the one who has an indestructible life. And so today we're going to look at all of Hebrews chapter 7. All of Hebrews chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to that. It's 28 verses, but I think it really flows together, and so that's why we're going to look at all of it this morning. And so I actually want us to read through the whole text this morning just to kind of get the flow of what the author is saying. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The author says to us, and God says to us, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. A few weeks ago, we saw the author was talking about the fact that Jesus is a better high priest, that that he exists as a better high priest for us. And he mentioned the word or the name Melchizedek multiple times in previous chapters. But then we saw over the last few weeks that he took a little bit of a detour, kind of a pastoral interlude to challenge and encourage us as his people in his word. But here in chapter 7, he jumps back in. He jumps back into what he's been talking about so far and what he'll continue to talk about in the next few chapters of Hebrews, that Jesus is, in fact, a better high priest who offers a better sacrifice than anything else. And on top of that, he's specifically a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And while this is a lot of verses, what I want us to see and why I want us to look at all of it together is because it's really a building argument. It's a building argument that's absolutely extraordinary and richly encouraging for our own souls. And so to try and digest this meaty text, I want to divide it up into three sections, and I've titled each of those three sections. So the first section is the type, the second section is the guarantor, and the last section is the uttermost. In verses 1 through 10, we see the type. An example is given. In verses 11 through 22, we see the guarantor, a reality of who Jesus is. And in verses 23 through 28, we see the uttermost, a rock-solid promise for us because of who Jesus is. So let's jump into the first section, the type. Again, we see this in verses 1 through 10. In these 10 verses, the author finally gives us some background on this mysterious Melchizedek. His name has been mentioned multiple times, but it's been... No other information given about him until this point. But he gives us this information by explaining the only two texts that Melchizedek is mentioned in in all the rest of the Bible in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. Genesis chapter 14, what's going on at that point is that Abraham, who at that point is called Abram, has found out that some of his kinsmen have been taken captive by some foreign kings, and actually multiple kings. And so he goes out to rescue them, and he defeats multiple kings in battle. He rescues his brothers and sisters. 
his family. And this takes place while Abraham and Sarah are on a journey, physically a journey and a faith journey. They've been promised by God that God is going to use Abraham to be a father of the nations and that he will not only bless Abraham, but through Abraham, he will bless the nations. He made that clear to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 15, God reiterates that promise and conducts a covenant ceremony with Abraham. But here we have this story in the middle of those promises in Genesis chapter 14, this little story. And so I want to read the text for us. Genesis chapter 14, 18 through 20, three verses. This is what it says. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed him, meaning Abraham, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Until Psalm 110, that's it. That's all we have in the scriptures about Melchizedek. That's it. And Psalm 110 comes so many years after this account in Genesis. That's all we know. And so we have this story in Genesis that then the author of Hebrews seeks to unpack a little bit in chapter 7. So what do we learn about this mysterious Melchizedek? Well, we see that he's a king and he's a priest. He's from a place called Salem. Some scholars think that might be Jerusalem. His name, if you translate his name, means king of righteousness. And because of where he's a king, he's also called the king of peace because the word Salem is a derivative of the word shalom, which we get the word peace from. So he's the king of righteousness and king of peace. But then he says this in verse 3, that he is without father or mother. He has no genealogy. He has no beginning and no end. What does this mean? That seems a little bit strange to us. Well, it isn't literally that he has no mother or father or that he has no genealogy. We just don't know anything about it. He says this about Melchizedek because it looks like, well, this guy just suddenly appears and then he suddenly disappears. He's there in the scene. He's talking to Abraham at that point. Seems to come out of nowhere. And then he's just gone. But what we see in the midst of this is this question of, well, who is this guy? And there's been some debate about who he is. But I think the author says clearly to us who he is. And more importantly, why he's talking about this at the end of verse 3. He says he resembles the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. He's a type. When we're talking about a type in Scripture, that's a person or a thing that acts as an example or an illustration or a picture to point to the actual person, to point to Jesus. So something we need to understand here is that Melchizedek doesn't have any significance apart from Christ. He derives significance from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, Melchizedek is inconsequential to the biblical story of redemption. So what we have to see in Hebrews chapter 7 is that Hebrews chapter 7 isn't really about Melchizedek. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. But there's more to this Melchizedek than just the fact that he has no beginning and no end. The author says in verse 4, See how great this man was. 
The reason he says that is because of this interaction he has with Abraham. When he met Abraham, he brought out some bread and wine to him, and then Abraham tithes to this priest king. I mean, this is huge, especially for the audience. These Jewish Christians who've recently walked away from their traditions in Judaism to follow Jesus. This is huge what he's saying here. Because, see, the law said that the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, had to give a tithe. They had to give 10% to the Levitical priesthood, to the priesthood of Israel that comes from the line of Levi. This is where we get our concept of of giving and the concept of giving 10% from. But here, what does it say? It says Abraham is giving a tithe to someone that's not a part of his line. The father of nations, who would be a blessing to the nations, then receives a blessing from Melchizedek. So the author makes this bold statement in verse 7. It is beyond dispute, he said, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now you can imagine a group of people who revere Abraham, who find their whole lineage from Abraham, everything about their life has been centered on Abraham, he just said is inferior to Melchizedek. That's a bold statement for him to make about Abraham and about this priest, but he's trying to make a point about Jesus in this. He even goes a step further in verses 9 through 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In other words, the lineage of Levi, through Abraham, of Levi hadn't happened yet, so in some ways, Levi, who receives tithes, is giving tithes to another priest. So what is he saying about this tithe? He's saying very clearly that Melchizedek and his priesthood are greater than the Levitical priesthood that came through Abraham and ultimately through Aaron. This leads to our next section of why this matters and why it relates to Jesus and ultimately to us. So we have the type in the first section, but now the second section is the guarantor. Verses 11 through 22. In verse 11, he asks kind of a a throwdown question here. He says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This rhetorical question has a resounding answer that it couldn't and it wouldn't bring about perfection. The law and its system could not bring about the perfection and redemption that God's people needed, that you and I need. In fact, in verse 18, he goes even further and says it is set aside because it is weak and it is useless. See, church, we need to understand that the law could point out our shortcomings, but it could not save. The law could point out our sin, but it screamed of our need for a Savior. And so God made a way. God made a way. He raised up another high priest from another priestly order, from the order of Melchizedek. He raised up Jesus, his very own son. Jesus, who wasn't born from the tribe of Levi, from which the priest came, but from the tribe of Judah. Jesus, who became a priest not based on lineage, but because of an indestructible life, just like Melchizedek. And see, then he goes back to Psalm 110, the psalm that was written so far after Melchizedek met Abraham, the psalm of promise, the psalm that was written to tell us that God was up to something and going to do something new. 
a psalm that was written to point us to Jesus. He says, you, talking about Jesus, you will be a priest forever like Melchizedek is a priest forever. And you, Jesus, will bring a better hope and a better covenant that will bring us near to God. Near to God. That's the reality that every single person on the face of the earth for all time so desperately needs to be brought near to their creator, God Almighty. See, the problem is, is that sin has separated us from God. Our rebellion against God, when we've decided to go our own way, to not follow God, to not do what God has called us to, not give glory and honor to Him, it separates us from God. We can't be in relationship with Him, and our our sin blinds our minds. It mars the image of God in us. Sin promises you the world, but all it gives you is death and darkness. And so the law cannot fix that. The law couldn't fix that then, and the law can't fix that now. My guess is for most of us in this room, we're not trying to follow the law like the Jewish people would have been trying to follow, but we have a law that we are trying to follow. There's something that you're doing in your life right now where you're trying to earn favor with God. There's something in your life right now where you think, if I can just do these things and check these boxes off, then God will love me more. He will bless me. He will accept me if I can meet these standards and follow these rules. But you cannot earn your way to God by your behavior. God doesn't love you more because you do more for Him. God doesn't love you less When you don't, it's not based on your performance. And so the law was set aside because a better hope had come. A hope of remedy and restoration, a hope to rescue and redeem us because we couldn't do it on our own. Jesus has come. He's come as priest and king, just like Melchizedek. And he has come to bring blessing, just like Melchizedek. But this blessing isn't just for Abraham, it's for the whole world. Jesus has come to bring us near to God. To bring us near to God by offering himself for our sin, by dying in our place as a substitute. To bring us near to God. Friends, this is an amazing reality that I think we are far too easily tempted to ignore or take for granted. In the day-to-day of our lives, recognizing that it's only through Christ that we are able to come before that throne of grace and near to our good Father. You see, we don't have to wonder if that's real life. This almost sounds too good to be true. Is this just a fantasy? No, we don't have to wonder because God himself, as we even talked about last week, is a perfect promise keeper. If he said he would do it, he has and he does. He swore he would do this by an oath, and he promised that on the basis of himself, and on top of that gave a guarantee of Jesus himself. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor is the person who backs the guarantee. He's the one who brings it about, even at the expense of his own life. Jesus is the guarantor because of his likeness to Melchizedek. But see, again, this is where we see that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. This isn't about Melchizedek, this is about Jesus. Because Melchizedek, though he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace, could, not never, could never make men righteous or give them peace. No, he always pointed to the one who could and the one who has. See, peace with God is only possible when we receive a righteousness from him. 
The righteousness that God demands from us, he's given to us in and through Christ. God declared this to be so in his word. He's a guarantor because he is a priest forever, as was Melchizedek. He's the guarantor because of his indestructible life. Indestructible life. Man, again, do we really understand what it means for Jesus to have an indestructible life? Does that word indestructible actually resonate with us the way that it should? This past week, I was in Nashville for a few days, and I was spending time with a group of guys that I get together with every year from college. We've been doing that for 15 or so years. We get together every year to encourage one another, and we were staying at an Airbnb house, and there was a sign at the house on the island that said, hey, watch out for ticks. It's in a kind of a wooded area, and it said the weather, because of the weather and all that kind of stuff, there's just a lot of ticks around, so be careful with the ticks. So one morning, I was outside, and I was trying to exercise a little bit, and so I was doing some push-ups, and I lowered myself to the ground, and right in front of me, crawling on the ground, is a little tick. So I finished doing some push-ups because I had my eye on him. And then I got up and I stomped on him. And he didn't move. I'm like, all right, no more tick. I went and got a drink of water because it was hot and humid and came back and there he is moving around again. So I stomped on him again. And he just kept moving. So I stomped on him again. I'm like, okay, come on, you've got to die. I am way bigger than you are. And he still kept moving. So then I went and got a lighter and I lit him on fire. And then he died. (laughs) He wasn't moving anymore after that. But man, when we think indestructible, is that what we think? Right? Like a, a tick is pretty much indestructible, but there is a way. Just light him on fire and he'll be gone. Is that what we think about an indestructible life? Like, well, okay, I get it. Most of the time it, it's indestructible. There's got to be a way. There's got to be a, a chink in the armor. There's got to be a way to break through. There's got to be a way to destroy. Does anything really endure forever? Does anything really endure forever? See, Jesus, our great high priest, died, but it was a part of his priestly office as he offered himself. Our great high priest died, but death couldn't hold him. See, he's the lamb who was slain for sin, but he's also the lion who is triumphant over death. Nothing could stop Jesus. He is the guarantor. Jesus, whose name literally means that he will save his people from their sin. Jesus. See, what the author is trying to clearly show a people who are tempted to turn back to the law, what he's trying to show you and show me who are tempted to turn to our performance, to earn our relationship with God, to be in a good standing with God, and turning away from Jesus in the midst of that is this simple truth that we all need to consider and believe, that it's the gospel of Jesus and the gospel alone that allows us to achieve the perfection which the law and our performance could never achieve. It's Jesus The gospel of Jesus that gives us full access to God and the ability to draw near to him because he is indestructible. It's not based on our performance or our position. It's not based on our accolades or our abilities, but on the guarantor of a better promise, a better covenant. And we'll get to see more about that next week in chapter 8. 
See, all of this leads to this glorious building of truth into our last section. We see a type, we see a guarantor, and then these last few verses, we see the uttermost. Verses 23 through 28. Let me just read verses 23 through 25 again. It says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently, because he, meaning Jesus, continues forever. Consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he, meaning Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. There were 83 high priests from the time of Aaron to the destruction of the second temple in AD 70. 83. Why? It's pretty simple. They lived and then they died. They couldn't endure forever. See, the Levitical priesthood provided a constant reminder of death and the need of redemption. Because even the very people who were called to represent God to the people and the people to God could not endure forever. But Jesus has and Jesus does. He holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever with his indestructible life. But then don't miss what he says in verse 25. Consequently, Consequently, because of this, he is able to save. Because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost. Because of who he is, the risen king, the perfect priest, the eternal son, he is able to save. To save you from the very wrath of God. God's righteous reaction to your rebellion. But see, that doesn't just save you from that, he saves you to something. I think it's important for us to remember, important for us to wrap our minds around. He saves you to a restored relationship with God. God doesn't just save you and forgive you and leave you there. He welcomes you into a relationship with him because of what Jesus does. You see, one of the most significant things about this text is that he isn't able to just merely save, but save to the uttermost. To save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely. He's able to save fully. He's able to save all who draw near to God through him. See, the tense of the word to save communicates that he is able to save at each critical moment of your life. In other words, Jesus doesn't just save you and leave you. He doesn't just save you and leave you and wish you the best and hope you figure life out. No, he has a sustained interest in the welfare of his people. Jesus has an unlimited ability to meet every need. Notice how he does this. Because he lives to always make intercession for you. That's amazing. Jesus goes before the Father for you. Always interceding for you. And when he goes, he's not going to a reluctant God who's unsure if he wants to help you or forgive you or extend grace to you. This is the God who himself, God the Father, who sent his son to rescue you, who sent his son to redeem you. And now Jesus, as we saw a few weeks ago, stands before the throne of God as a priest's king to praying to a God who always hears and always grants his request. Because of Jesus' indestructible life, he now has unbroken access to the Father and represents you eternally before the throne. 
He is the once dead, now risen, forever interceding king and priest. He is the once dead lamb who is now alive, who has dominion over all things. And church, what a glorious truth. This forever priest is forever able to save you fully and completely and forever. It never runs out. It never goes away. It's forever. No part of your life is unsavable. No part of your life is irredeemable. He's able to save completely. Man, does that get you fired up this morning? That there's nothing in you, nothing that's happened in your life or will happen in your life that Jesus is not able to redeem in your life. He doesn't go on a break. He doesn't lay down his role as priest and king and savior and God. He endures forever. You see, sometimes I think it's easy for us to lift our hands and praise on a Sunday morning, but completely forget about that on a Tuesday. See, our struggle comes down to whether we believe this is possible or not, that Jesus is actually able to do this. It comes down to whether we believe we actually need this kind of saving or not. So what do you believe this morning? Not just with you say, what you say with your mouth or could write in a paper or read in a book or sing in a song. What do you actually functionally believe? In the middle of the night when you can't sleep, when you're unsure of how you're going to make ends meet, when you're in conflict with your spouse or a friend or a roommate, when you're struggling at work and trying to figure out what in the world to do with your life, when your health is failing, when you've stumbled and fallen into that same sin again, what do you believe? Can Jesus save you? Can he save you completely? Can he save you fully? Can he save you to the uttermost? Do you actually believe that you need that kind of full and total and holistic saving? Or are you still believing that you're good enough? that you've done enough, that you know enough? Or is there just that part of your life? And I don't know what it is, but there's just that part of your life that you just want to hold on to. Jesus, you can have the rest, but I'm keeping this part. Do you believe you need that kind of cleansing from Jesus? Are you desperate for it? Because I know the reality for me is oftentimes I'm not that desperate for Jesus. I can be pretty good on my own. Maybe right now you're thinking, well, it can't be that kind of saving because there's just too much that I've done. There's too much going on in my heart and my life right now that just doesn't seem like God would want to have anything to do with me. Or maybe he'll save me a little bit, but I'm still going to have to bear the weight of this punishment on my own for this thing. Listen. We have to get this. We have to keep daily striving to believe it and communicate it. His grace to you doesn't go, oh, stop. No more grace for you. No more sacrifice for that. Insufficient funds available for you. No, his saving grace is scandalously sufficient scandalously sufficient for all of your sin and all of your suffering 
and it is scandalously sufficient for all people. This means that he is able to save to the lowest places and to the highest peaks. He is able to save your hard-to-reach child and your hard-to-reach coworker. He is able to save the person finding their hope in their sexuality. He is able to save the person finding their identity in it, or finding their hope or identity in their politics, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. He's able to save the person whose sin you think is completely heinous. He's able to save the ISIS fighter. He's able to save the murderer and the child abuser. He's able to save anyone and everyone completely and fully. Simply put, Jesus is able to save your neighbors and the nations, no matter who they are or what they've done. If that makes you uncomfortable, then maybe you don't understand your own sin and need for a Savior. Sojourn, his salvation is absolute. There is no chance that his grace will run out or his interceding will ever cease. And we never have to wonder because we know, because our Redeemer lives, because he has an indestructible and eternal life. That's the gospel we're unashamed of at Sojourn Church. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, men and women and children from every tribe and every language and every nation. At the end of this chapter, in verses 26 and 20, through 28, the author comes back to this comparison of Jesus, the priest in the order of Melchizedek and these other priests, and he states a simple yet profound truth. At the end of the day, the new priesthood of Jesus is better because the new priest is Jesus. Jesus, the eternal, indestructible Son of God who's separate from sin but saves sinners It has been made perfect forever. See, the members of this community he's writing to, they doubted God's ability to act decisively in the present on their behalf. They doubted Jesus' ability to save them here and now. Do you ever struggle with that? Maybe you think, well, Jesus could have saved me yesterday. He saved me a few years ago, but can he do this right now? And so the author is telling them, and he's telling us, helping us to realize God's final action in Christ, and of Christ's present ability to help you face the realities of your circumstances, no matter what they are. That your confession of Jesus being Lord, that your confession of Jesus being the Son of God is a confession that Jesus is able to save you in the present and to the end. What we've seen in this text is that the type Melchizedek, this king-priest whose name means righteousness and peace, points us to Jesus, the true king of righteousness and the true king of peace, the guarantor who is able to save you to the uttermost. The reality and implication of this is simple for all of us, is that here and now that you too can have an indestructible life. That no priest or pastor or position or passionate plea for the sufficiency of your good works will bring this about. The indestructible life doesn't come through doing something on your own to try and deal with your guilt, to try and deal with the brokenness of your life or the fallenness of this world. It doesn't come through facial creams or fad diets or special oils or working out. No, the indestructible life comes only through the indestructible life of Jesus, who takes on your guilt fully, 
and saves you completely. So do you truly know him? He is able. Are you ready to be saved completely by him? And I say that to you, whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian. Are you ready to be saved completely by him? Will you lay down your burdens and follow him? In church, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ already, are you fired up to tell all people, the coworker in the cubicle next to you, the neighbor in the house across the street from you, the man, woman, or child across the ocean and far from you, are you fired up to tell all of them about him? Sojourn, we have the comfort of a forever priest. We have the completeness of his saving work. We have no other mediator, and we need no other mediator, because Jesus is enough. We can rest in him, and we can go for him. And may that promise anchor your soul now and forever. In response to the preached word of God, we're going to come forward and take communion this morning. And we come to the table to eat the bread and we drink the cup. And it's a, it's a simple meal. A simple meal that reminds us of the enormity and the immensity of the saving work of Jesus. But did you notice when we read Genesis 14 about Melchizedek coming out to Abraham that he brought bread and wine to Abraham? So long ago, he brought him a communion-like meal of blessing. A meal that Jesus himself would offer his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. And this is my blood shed for you. So today, and every time we gather together as a church, we eat this same meal. We eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus. We eat the bread and drink the cup and proclaim our need for the complete saving work of Jesus. We eat the bread and we drink the cup in celebration that because of Jesus' indestructible life, you too can have an indestructible life. So if you're a follower of Christ, come forward today in thankfulness that he has done it for you. If you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward, not to partake of this meal. Because this meal doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. And so we want you to take Christ today. We want you to experience the, the uttermost saving work of Jesus, that he is able to overcome anything and everything in your life and bring you near to God. So if you're ready to start a relationship with Jesus, just hang out in your seat and just talk to Jesus. Ask him to save you today. And then let someone around you know that you're, you've done that or you're ready to do that so we can walk with you in this journey, continuing to follow after Christ our King. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or the tables in the back, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and listen to the words of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this mysterious Melchizedek points us to the glorious Jesus, our priest and king who saves us to the uttermost. And so, Father, I pray that you would complete that saving work today in our lives, that you would save us fully and completely and continue to do that work and bring us all the way home. May we all embrace the indestructible life of Jesus, that we may have an indestructible life and draw near to you. May we never take that for granted. 
And then, Father, I pray that you would send us out. Send us out to tell the world about our forever priest so they too could experience his saving grace. We love you. We praise you. And we pray all this in the name of Christ our King. Amen.